In many respects, the loss by ASU to Washington State 34-21 leaves you both speechless in every negative way, as well as wanting to vent endlessly about one of the worst performances we've seen in several years from an ASU football team. Well, this podcast wouldn't really serve its purpose if it chose the former. So in this episode of the Devil's Junkies podcast, I decided not only to give my own thoughts about Saturday's loss to the Cougars, but also give you, the Sun Devil fan, the, the platform to ask the tough questions after such a disappointing display as I give you my opinion on what I believe will transpire not only the rest of the 2021 season, but also what does the future hold for this program. So thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get this thing started. I was living in a devil town. I didn't know what was a devil town. Oh Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town. Welcome to the Devil's Junkies Podcast. I'm your host and devilsdigest.com publisher, Hode Rubino. And I believe one of my premium subscribers at devilsdigest.com put it best when he said concerning the ASU team and their dreadful performance at Sun Devil Stadium on Saturday that you had two freaking weeks to prepare for this game and you look like you just stepped out of hibernation mode. And I believe that this ASU fan really hit the nail on the head because We've seen a lot of disappointing losses in Tempe and just by the ASU program in general, but sometimes there are some negating circumstances, if you will, in play that just may be bigger than Arizona State. Sometimes you have the ball not bounce your way, or maybe you leave the game to the ever so competent Pac-12 officials. And yes, I am being sarcastic here, where one or two controversial calls can determine the outcome just because you did not build enough equity, so to speak, to overcome these human errors. But as this ASU fan said, coming out of the bye week after an extremely disappointing loss to Utah, one that at the time looked to be detrimental to your own chances of winning the Pac-12 South crown, you'd think that right then, right there, you, if nothing else, would be plenty motivated and obviously rested both physically and mentally and be as prepared as possible and as focused as possible to take on a Washington State team which at least on paper probably had more adversity than you did, as in one week leading up to this ASU game, they saw their head coach and four of his assistants being fired due to not following COVID protocols and suffering a disappointing two-point loss to BYU at home. And by the way, if we're talking about motivation, while ASU was enjoying the one-week hiatus, that same Utah team, which did not relinquish the spot in their driver's seat for the division championship, was now in the same boat as ASU in terms of needing to win out to secure that crown following their own conference loss to Oregon State. So perhaps a loss while being a two-touchdown favorite maybe wasn't as far-fetched as a proposition as we thought it was going to be. At the same time, the last thing you would expect this ASU team to display was such a high degree of sloppiness, which resulted in not one or two, but actually four turnovers in the first half alone, five if you're considering giving up the ball on downs. And it wasn't until 23 seconds before halftime where ASU even got on the board after spotting the visitors 28 points. Normally in my post-game podcast, I take a deep dive and analyze what transpired on the field. But in this podcast, I'm going to somewhat limit that analysis for two reasons. First of all, I do already have a comprehensive examination of this contest with an article on my front page at devilsidus.com titled Washington State at ASU Postgame Thoughts, where I discuss extensively everything that transpired in that contest 
and what were the key elements that really hindered Arizona State on both sides of the ball in this loss to Washington State. And as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, I wanted to make sure that I answered as many questions as possible, as I did receive about 60 of those questions from ASU fans, which I did have to pare down to some extent so they're not repetitive, but I want to make sure that I address the most burning and significant issues that are being brought up by the fan base following this performance by ASU. So let's take a look at what transpired in that 34-21 loss to Washington State. So when you look at the offense, and as I mentioned, it was an absolute abomination, especially in the first half, and things really didn't get a whole lot better in the second half. What has to be the most frustrating aspect here is that quarterback, Jaden Daniels, said that he and his teammates on offense were more than cognizant of Washington State's efficiency in causing turnovers. After all, ASU's opponent came into this game as top 15 in the nation in turnovers, forcing 16 of those. So now you not only talk about an extra week of preparation that ASU had, but also having the full understanding that in order for you to get back on the winning track, you're not facing the tomato can, to borrow a term from the boxing world, that ASU perhaps encountered in their previous two Pac-12 home games against Colorado and Stanford, but they were facing an opponent in Washington State that I would argue may be light years better than those two aforementioned teams. So you can make the assumption that Washington State may have been down in their dumps and maybe the sports books in Vegas and elsewhere felt that way and that's why they made ASU a heavy favorite. But it's also easy to forget that up until the loss to BYU and the firing of the head coach and the four assistants, this still was Washington State team that won three games in a row and had a legitimate chance in capturing the Pac-12 North crown. And the loss by BYU, as bitter as it was, especially taking place in Pullman, had no effect whatsoever being a non-conference game on Washington State's own division race. So there was much that was made over the fact that Arizona State had a three-headed monster rather than a one-two punch at running back, and that the quote-unquote forgotten man, Daniel Ngata, was going to be a prominent feature in this year's ASU's rushing attack and not take a massive backseat to the two premier bowl carriers in Rashad White and DeMonte Training. But when you look at the distribution of carries and other statistical categories that you may wish to dissect, and despite the fact that both Trainum and White, to a lesser extent, already miss playing times due to injuries, it's Ngada, who again was mentioned as someone that would have a larger share of contributions compared to the 2021 season, and that would be a more prominent feature in the ASU ground attack, that now he was regulated to be that forgotten man label that I'm sure the ASU coaches never wanted him to carry a second year in a row. It goes without saying that ASU's offense is only going to go as far as its running game is going to take them. And we already saw on more than one occasion that if it's only White that's in the game and carrying the ball, or if it's only Trainum doing the same as he did last week against Washington State, that the increased pressure on each of those individuals to truly carry the load, no pun intended, affects them personally and affects ASU's overall ability to impose their will on the ground. Because, again, they are choosing as a coaching staff to give Ngata very, very limited opportunities. I mean, just in the game against Washington State, Trainum already had 11 carries at halftime, and Gada did not even have one. And I'm just not sure how objectively you can look 
at that distribution, if you can even call it a distribution of carries, and think that this was conducive for the ASU ground attack to really get in gear and really play at a high level, especially in a first half where you had to get something positive out of this offense, whether it's a ground game, whether it's a passing game, and really just putting so much pressure on, on training without White to be there to balance the load, let alone without Ngata coming off the bench to try and even things out, really, really hurt Arizona State, I believe, in that contest. Let's not forget that in a loss to BYU, a game where training was not available, White was the primary running back, that Ngata in the third quarter coming cold off the bench after two quarters of not seeing action had eight carries for 87 yards and a touchdown just in the third quarter alone, and he did not see any playing time the rest of the way. I'm not going to say that that was the end-all, be-all reason for Arizona State dropping that contest in Provo in mid-September, but nonetheless, very early in the season, Engada showed the ASU coaches that he's more than ready to shoulder the load if needed, and the if-needed scenario, at a minimum, it's when either White or Trainum cannot play, but I will take that a step further. If you want to have that three-headed monster, that punishing ground attack that's absolutely going to dictate the flow of the game, why is Ngada seeing so little opportunities game in and game out, where by and large, he's proving that every time he's inserted into the contest, he is making the most out of his opportunities. He is not out there holding back the ASU running game. Now, to be clear, I am definitely not pinning all the issues that the ASU offense had against Washington State on the running game. There definitely was a snowball effect in the passing game because, after all, all three fumbles in the first half were on passing plays where Jaden Daniels is finding his respective receivers. They're actually achieving a first down with a 10 yards or more reception and only then fumbling the ball. So, I'm not saying that ASU should have abandoned the passing game due to those fumbles. And actually, Jaden Daniels didn't have a horrible outing from start to finish in the first half. I mean, yes, he had an interception where he forced the ball that really should not have been thrown. But if those various receivers for ASU weren't fumbling the ball, they were also dropping the ball. And yes, sure, there were some misreads by Jaden Daniels himself. But when head coach Herm Edwards talked about playing complimentary football, I'm sure he was, first of all, referring for the offense, balancing the defense and vice versa. But I also think there's something to be said about complimentary football on offense where you do have the rushing game and the passing game really acting in unison, really balancing each other out, which in turn can throw off balance your the opposing defense, but that really ne- never happened. Running game uh, sputtered, had under 50 yards of rushing in the half, and even though they had a much better second half, it was way too little, way too late. Uh, the passing game almost came, came to a halt. Uh, Jaden Daniels only had 47 passing yards in, in, in the second half, so this really was an offense that struggled really early in the game and just did gigantic hole that they placed themselves in was ultimately an abyss they could never really climb out of. Now, when you look at the ASU defense, I'm a big believer that there's absolutely something to be said about receiving 
some kind of support uh, from the offense that can affect you as a defender to play better. And needless to say, there was zero support offered by the ASU offense last Saturday afternoon. But at the same time, this is still a defense that when you look at their performance in the second half against Utah, coupled with the performance in the first half against Washington State, they have yielded 56 unanswered points. Now, not to belabor the point, the ASU offense in those two halves against Utah, against Washington State, played horribly. And really for the entire Washington State game, the offense, as mentioned, offered little to no support whatsoever. But it still was an ASU defense that on the one hand did have to deal with the short yardage that those multiple turnovers in the first half caused because two of the scoring drives by Washington State, two touchdown drives, I should say, uh, went for 20 yards and 49 yards. So you can talk about the defense operating from a huge disadvantage. But at the same time, turnovers are not by the offense. The ASU defense allowed two touchdown drives that traveled 80 and 87 yards, respectively. You talk about a Washington passing game that absolutely sliced and diced the ASU secondary. It was one explosive play after another, after another. And while the Washington State running game may have not been that high on the scouting report and really wasn't an element that did much damage in the first half, Washington State did score two rushing touchdowns in the first half, but more importantly, in the second half, even though it was a period where the ASU defense played much better, it still had 109 yards on the ground that negated a very quiet passing game performance by Washington State in the second half. But you have to give credit to the ASU defense. Again, there's no way to sugarcoat what we saw in the first half from that Sun Devil unit. But in the second half, they did pitch a third quarter shutout. The only points that Washington State did score in the last two quarters, really in the fourth quarter, I should say, were two field goals. No touchdowns were yielded by ASU. I know it's really, really hard and maybe a stretch to look for any points of light, if you will, from such a dreadful performance. But I think that the ASU defense, to their credit, made good halftime and in-game adjustments in the second half to stop the bleeding. The offense never responded in kind. The two touchdowns the offense did score in the second half uh, came with less than five minutes left in the game. The epitome of too little, too late. Ultimately, this was just an uphill battle where an adverse tone, I should say a very significant adverse tone, was set early and often in the first half. Both sides of the ball for ASU played one of their worst games of the season, if not the worst. And it was an absolute uphill battle on steroids, if you will, that ASU had to contend with all day on Saturday. And some might say it's hyperbolic to even mention that the most embarrassing facet of this game was the fact that ASU not only loses a homecoming game, but also a weekend where the 25th anniversary of the 1996 Pac-10 championship team was honored and a great job, by the way, by the ASU Alumni Association and the Legends Luncheon and the various activities 
that this squad of former players did partake over last weekend. And for that group of incredible players, by far one of the best teams we ever have and ever will see in Tempe, for them to experience such a debacle in person. Uh, again, I might be in the minority here, but I think that might be the most embarrassing outcome of this 34-21 loss to Washington State. But judging by the questions that I received by the from the ASU fans, there were a lot of embarrassing components uh, to discuss and a lot of uh, wondering, if not apprehension, of what does the rest of the season hold for the Sun Devils? What does 2022 and beyond look for this program? So let's go next and open up this heavy mailbag of some very pointed questions by the ASU fans. Okay, Sun Devil fans, I have more than two dozen questions to attend to, so let's dive right into it. There are probably many factors, but what do you think the biggest one is with this midseason collapse? And I really think it's really more rooted in the offense than, than it is in the defense, because I think that by and large, the defense has played pretty well throughout the first eight games of the season. Even when we look at the loss to BYU, don't forget that the only points that the Cougars did score in that contest in Provo was basically a garbage time touchdown. And if the offense for ASU could show any signs of life, and that's when the passing game was really struggling uh, quite a bit. Demonte Trainum, as I mentioned earlier, did not play in that game. Daniel Angada should have received many more opportunities than he actually did. That's something that really could solve the issues in that game. Even even look at one of the more convincing wins that ASU had, especially in Pac-12 play, 28-10 to 10 over Stanford. And the ASU offense started out on fire, scored 21 points in the first quarter and a half, really quarter and a quarter, if you want to be technical about it. I think it was uh, 11 minutes and change left in the first half when the ASU offense scored its last points of the game. And ever since then, it was just absolutely lethargic, did not score one point the rest of the way. Stanford was anything but a juggernaut on defense, and that's really been proven even in the games following the loss to ASU. So really, by and large, it's hard to say that the offense has truly carried its weight. Now, sure, the second half against Utah, where the defense yielded 28 unanswered points and the first half of the Washington State game where they did exactly the same. Those are definitely indictments on the defense, but those are still in comparison to me aberrations as to the offensive performance, which has been an absolute roller coaster, extremely inconsistent, especially with the passing game and even the running game, which we thought uh, could play at a consistently high level the entire season. Sure, injuries did hamper it, but I also think the misuse of Engada, and I don't mean to belabor the point over here, but I have a feeling that we're going to look back at the totality of the season. That is still going to be one of the aspects that's really going to stick out like a sore thumb 
when it comes to the AFC rushing game in specific. But again, I just think this offense has really been ineffective. Uh, whatever play calling, whatever approach Zach Hill and the coaching staff on that side of the ball is trying to employ is simply not working. You have on paper a talented group of wide receivers, but none of them has consistently been that go-to guy like a Nikhil Harry or Brandon Ayuk from a few years ago that is able to be a successful focal point of this offense, maybe taking the pressure off of their teammates. That simply has not been found by the ASU offense, and I very much doubt if such a player will emerge for the last four games of the season. So that leads me to the next question. What's what's happening with this offense? Great quarterbacks, great running backs, offensive line, and they really can move the ball. So, again, I think it's something that I addressed uh, earlier in the podcast and even earlier with the, with, the, with the first question because if this running game cannot perform at a high efficiency level, then there's just a vicious domino effect that really happens from there. And it's almost impossible to expect this passing game to pull their own weight and then some when when the rushing game is really faltering. I mean, let's not forget that the peak of this passing game was a performance they had against UCLA. Oh, by the way, the same UCLA team, which at the time sported the fifth worst pass defense among all FBS teams. And I don't even know if these days it's really much better in that court category. So that was a game, if you recall, that UCLA actually had, I think, the fifth or sixth best run defense in the country at the time. And ASU's running game, sure enough, did struggle against that UCLA unit. But just because the passing game was able to absolutely exploit the biggest efficiency on the UCLA defense, maybe the biggest efficiency period that this Bruins squad has, that was able to compensate for the struggles of the running game, which, by the way, did wake up in the second half. But again, I just feel that whether, whether it's a rushing game and it's issued with injuries and not really allocating the carries effectively, or it's the passing game, which has been so greatly in, in, inconsistent all, all throughout the year. And whenever they face a secondary with a pulse, if you will, uh, the struggles are showing in just huge magnitude. Uh, sure, you got, um, I think, a larger than expected number of drops. And sure, there are misreads uh, but by, by Jed and Daniels. And sure, sometimes there's, there's faulty decision-making by Daniels where he might not go through all his progressions and just tuck and run instead of maybe standing in the pocket for a minute or two more. We've seen a lot of false starts and holding penalties by this offensive line. Ben Scott, who I believe is a foundation of this ASU offensive line, I think already throughout eight games has easily a handful of penalties, maybe even close to seven, eight of of those transgressions. And those are absolutely drive killers, as we know. And that leads me to the next question on the list over here. Why do the Sun Devils continue to make so many mistakes? I believe it comes down to accountability. I feel that as much as the coaches would like to believe that they hold these players accountable, at the end of the day, whatever message they're trying to convey is just, not coming through or not coming through to an effective degree as you would expect them to. And it's baffling that you have so many veterans on both sides of the ball uh, committing to those mistakes. And some of it is just 
poor technique where you can be a third or fourth or fifth year player, but your technique is still faulty at times and you get away from really being a solid player, somebody we would expect to perform at a certain high level, being so many years playing as a, as a Pac-12 player. So I think that's part of it. I think you definitely have a lot of penalties of frustration, maybe more on the defense than the offense, where ASU just gets into a big hole that's not able to climb out of, and that's when the frustration penalties uh, uh, come out. So it really is just a, a magnitude uh, of mishaps that's happening over here with this ASU team. But I think more than anything, if you're not effectively, keyword effectively, holding the players accountable, whether it's from the coaches, from the players, or the team captains from within the team, holding those that are committing trans- transgressions accountable, then uh, you're just going to have a multitude of mistakes happening weekend and week out. Now, it's no secret that the NCAA investigation looms large over Arizona State. We already know that three of their assistant coaches, three of their best recruiters, Adam Brennerman, Chris Hawkins, Prentice Gill, have been on admin leave ever since the summer. So these next questions really relate to that dark cloud that's been hovering over the program. And one question is, is this simply a lame duck staff? Teams get upset all the time but really get dominated by a 16-point underdog. Something seems amiss, judging by the body of language of the team. They seem to have cashed out. And look, I've said it before and I'll I'll say it again. When ASU was on a little run of wins, when they beat UCLA convincingly in the Rose Bowl, nobody brought up the NCAA investigation. So I think that the effect of that investigation is really more minimal than fans may think it is. Because... Ultimately, there's some other issues, and there are enough issues that are plaguing this team. And I don't think a coach is going into work every day with the thought of the NCAA investigation really hampering their game preparation. You can have an ineffective game preparation by not scouting the opponent correctly, by maybe delegating some duties to folks that should not be carrying out those duties in, in, in terms of scouting. And sometimes this comes down to devising a game plan that absolutely misread the capabilities of your player, misread the opponent that you're lining up against on any given Saturday. So to me, those are more uh, crucial elements uh, in play than a staff cashing out. And I really don't think it's really the players cashing out or the players checking out because we're expecting easily a dozen or so players to be in the NFL draft, not only because they exhausted the eligibility, but some of them because they want to seek out that opportunity. And trust me, those players could care less about an NCAA investigation that is not going to affect the 2021 season and definitely not having the effect that some fans think it, it is having. So I really doubt that those players, the super seniors or the players, that know they're going to be in the NFL draft, even though they have one or two more years to play at ASU or play at the collegiate level, to have the NCAA investigation affect their performance when they're trying their darnest each and every week to showcase themselves in the best possible light to the NFL scouts that are seeing them in games. And even NFL scouts are attending practices. I'm just not not really buying 
that 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 argument. I will say, on the other hand, that maybe when there's one or two games left, and maybe some coaches on the staff, including Herm Edwards, the head coach, are thinking, okay, this actually could be my next to last game or my last game on this ASU staff. Maybe then I think the NCAA investigation plays a bigger effect on the psyche. But until then, I really don't think the effect of that investigation is as profound as some people think it is. And as mentioned, when they beat UCLA on the road, which at the time maybe looked like a more impressive win than it does now, and nobody brought up this NCAA investigation as an element that ASU won despite of. So on the same token, this two-game losing streak that ASU is going through right now I don't believe that it is because of the NCAA investigation. And that leads me to the next question. Since the halftime of the Utah game, this team has not been the same. Were they briefed on some end-of-the-season changes? Now, I know this question is asked in jest and being sarcastic to the hilt, but I think what happened in that uh, Utah game is that the emotion that the youths were really caught up on uh, honoring their uh, fallen uh, fallen teammates is something that hindered them in the first half and was all the motivation that they needed in the second half. And I said before the game that before they're going to show that really impressive tribute video between the third and fourth quarter that ASU had to make sure that they're leading by three, four touchdowns because you just know that that Utah team was going to come as if they're shot out of a cannon in, in the fourth quarter uh, charged with emotion and really just dominating uh, ASU. But that, unfortunately, for the Sun Devils really happened much earlier uh, in, in that half. And just the intensity and the emotion that, again, may have really hampered the youths in the first half because they were down 21-7 uh, was the same uh, sentiment, if you will, that really helped uh, Utah Get, get, get over the hump. And look, there are some games, not to make excuses, where you simply cannot match the intensity of the opponent, where just everything seems to be falling their their way. And whatever answer you try to come, come up with, whatever in-game adjustments you're trying to employ are simply not working. And it was just one of those games at Utah, again, in the second half, where the AC coach itself was not able to press the right buttons, was not able to exploit any matchups on either side of the ball that, that, that would favor them. So to me, that's really what happened in that specific contest rather than the NCAA investigation having this or that effect. Um, another question, fine-tune what we have with the football team or wholesale changes and tear down and rebuild, which path for Sun Devil football? And that really you know, leads to some questions which I'll address later on what kind of staff changes are we going to see with ASU football? And that's obviously really going to dictate, are we fine-tuning some elements or really just tearing everything down to build it back up? And that's right now still unknown, and I'm not trying to evade the answer here by any means, but we don't know if this is Herm Edwards' last year. Now, if I'm putting odds on it, yes, I would say it's probably better than 50% odds that Herm Edwards, no matter what happens the rest of the year, in terms of wins and losses, no matter what happens with this NCAA investigation, which I don't think there's going to be any clear-cut resolution uh, during the month of November or even during the month of December that would dictate a Herm Edwards move. 
I feel that more than likely Herm Edwards is right now coaching his last season in, in, in Tempe, but what happens to the rest of the staff, whether it's Antonio Pierce, who's been the head coach in waiting, um, how much does the NCAA investigation affect or not affect him? And what about some of the assistants, which I really think by and large have done positive things at Arizona State, whether it's defensive lineman, uh, coach, Robert Rodriguez, running backs coach, uh, Sean Aguano, uh, do, do those assistant coaches still continue with the program regardless of who the head coach will or won't be in 2022? Those are questions that are really, really hard to answer right now. And those are the questions that really would dictate, are we seeing an absolute teardown and rebuild of the program or maybe some tweaking here and there? So to me, that's a huge TBD, but if there's one determination that I will make is that I do think Herm Edwards will not be the head coach in 2022, regardless of what the final record is going to be and not believing that the NCAA is going to come down with any type of significant resolution between now and the end of the regular season that would cause Herm Edwards uh, to step down just because of that specific reason. Next question is, is this really Zach Hill's offense or is he a puppet of what Herm Edwards wants to achieve? Here's the thing. Herm Edwards in the preseason has not been shy of wanting a more explosive offense, of wanting to score in the 30s. And by by and large, that happened for a good portion of the season. I know that uh, the ASU offense, in effect, has scored uh, 21 points in each of the last three contests. Uh, contest. I know that it was the score was 28-10 against Stanford, but uh, obviously it was a defensive touchdown accounting for those uh, last uh, seven points on that Saturday. But there's no doubt that Herm Edwards has some influence on Zach Hill, just like he has some influence on Antonio Pierce and the defensive side of the ball. But at the same token, Herm Edwards is somebody who really prided himself on delegating as many duties as possible. And I think that also does encompass the ASU offense. He wanted this offense to be more creative. He wanted this offense to be more explosive. So in my opinion, when you look at the offensive struggles, I don't think it's Herm Edwards holding the reins so tight and not letting this offense really flourish and play to its full potential. I think it's just more Zach Hill not being effective in the play calling, not being effective in the game planning, not being effective in personnel decisions that is really hindering this offense rather than Herm Edwards just laying down his thumb a little too hard, if you will. Next question, and this is obviously in the spirit of honoring the 25th anniversary of the 1996 Pac-10 champions, 25 years and counting, when will this Rose Bowl drought end? And look, truth be told, I really thought the Rose Bowl drought was going to end uh, this year. Chances are slim to none, and that's probably putting it kindly of that of that happening. I mean, I don't see ASU really winning the South to begin with, and even if they did, winning the Pac-12 uh, championship in their current state really does seem as a far-fetched dream. I don't think we're going to have to wait another 25 years to see another Rose Bowl team, I like to think that it wouldn't be more than five, seven years until we will see uh, this team make a return uh, to, uh, to to the Rose Bowl. But uh, I know it's definitely disappointing of having 
a team that talent-wise, and I still believe this, is the most talented team we probably saw this century tied with the 2013 team that did win the Pac-12 South. And I think this team may have had even more talent than the 2007 team that had a share of the Pac-10 championship. Uh, It really is a damn shame that this team is not going to win the South, let alone even have a shot at the Rose Bowl. But I also don't think we have to wait uh, another 25 uh, years that we already waited until now. I think it's probably going to be in the next five to seven years. I like to think that ASU is going to have the capabilities and the resources to build a championship team over here in Tempe. Next question has to do with Ray Anderson. We got a lot of those. Um, I'm not familiar with the details of the Ray Anderson contract, but I assume there's some sort of buyout similar to the coaches. Given we can't afford to keep firing people with big buyouts every five years, could it be terminated for cause since the NCAA allegations uh, occurred under his watch? I think that in theory, yes, uh, that is something that university president Dr. Michael Crow could employ if he wanted to when deciding on the future of, of Ray Anderson. I have the gut feeling that it may be more of a settlement of reduced salary that Crow and Anderson will come to an agreement rather than just uh, terminating Ray Anderson, much like Washington State did with their head coach, Nick Rolovich, terminating him for cause and really not owing him one dime. That's something that my gut feeling says is probably not going to happen. I can see just more of a financial settlement taking place rather than Ray Anderson having his employment uh, terminated uh, for cause and without him receiving any financial compensation, any severance whatsoever. And another question that was um, asked is, uh, do you see Ray Anderson and Herm Edwards being relieved of their duties, whether it's terminate, termination, resignation, how, however the case may be in the same year, or even in the span of a few months away from each other. And I really can't see that happening because as much as Michael Crow might be very disappointed with the state of affairs with this football team, first the NCAA investigation, and now the results or lack thereof on the field, he knows very well that trying to replace both the head football coach and athletic director in the same year or even just three, six months apart is really setting the program back, really setting the athletic administration back multiple years. And I highly, highly doubt that Crow would even entertain that avenue. I think it's much, much more likely that Herm Edwards is the first one to go. I still think it's going to be a resignation and not and not a firing. Some folks have asked me, do you think if Ray Anderson, who obviously vouched for Herm Edwards as a personal friend of Herm Edwards, would he be the one to actually relieve Herm Edwards of his duties? Would it be more the university president actually doing that? I think that Michael Crow would want uh, Ray Anderson to have that discussion one-on-one with Herm Edwards regarding his future. So yes, I could see Ray Anderson and Herm Edwards coming to a mutual agreement that really would look more like a resignation rather than a firing. 
And it's actually because of that personal relationship the two individuals have that this is the course of action that I see happening rather than Ray Anderson just inviting Herm Edwards to his office to tell him that he's relieved of his duties. I really think it's going to be a mutual settlement of resignation, probably some kind of financial compensation uh, to take, taking place uh, and not so much a resignation with cause, which probably in employment terms is not even an accurate term to use, but one that would see Herm Edwards leave Tempe with zero dollars in his pocket. I just don't see that happening, but also don't see a full buyout uh, taking place either uh, if and when uh, he were to leave at the end of the 2021 season, which again, I think the chances are that this will take place. Next question, is there a, is there a uh, leadership vacuum on this team? We'd love to hear your thoughts on what has happened. And yes, I think absolutely, when you look at what has happened in the last couple of games, that uh, the leadership is not really being employed effectively by the coaches, but I'm not taking the players off the hook because I think the captains as a group even though there are some individuals individuals there, such as Case Hatch, such as Chase Lucas, which have no problem whatsoever getting in the player's face and calling the spade a spade, at the same time, I just don't feel that you can look at what's transpiring on the field and talk about effective leadership from the team captains, whether it's trying to uh, employ that leadership on their fellow players or really being that effective liaison between the players and the coaches and in, and in turn, the coaches being effective leaders. I think there's some coaches on the staff that are more effective leaders than others, but you just have to look at the coaching body as a whole and you do have three interim coaches, three individuals that when the season started or when fall camp started, I should say, didn't dream of being position coaches and were just thrusted into that position. And I like to think that the players would fully respect whomever the individual is coaching them, whether it's somebody who they fully expected to be their position leader going into the 2020 season, or was it the individual that just had to be inserted into that role on an emergency basis system, if you will, because the original position coach was an admin leave. I think there's something to be said about the leadership um, lacking when you're not going into the season and being prepared as a position coach leader. And also maybe having a pushback, which may be blatant, may be less apparent by the players to the position coach. I think those are all valid theories. And I don't think it's a matter of the inmates running the asylum or anything like that. Nothing that we saw like like we did under the Dennis Erickson years. But nonetheless, I do think there is something to be said about all the changes that took place on this coaching staff uh, not resulting in good leadership and maybe ASU facing inferior, let alone much inferior opponents on some Saturdays was able to overcome the leadership vacuum that this ASU fan is mentioning. But ultimately... I do think that a lack of leadership is definitely a problem on this team. I think you would be uh, really naive at best to think that that is not an aspect that's really hindering this team right now, especially with the rut that they're in over these last couple of games. 
Uh, this one is an observation, maybe more of a question, saying that the 21 ASU offense, most, most acute struggles have overlapped with the prolonged absence of a star running back. This happened in-game against BYU, most of the second half against Stanford and Utah, the entire game against Washington State, and really ex- except for the Stanford win, in every other instance, the ASU's offensive skill players failed to carry the team and Rashad White was out. And and that's an excellent point. And that really goes back to my earlier point. Don't want to beat that drum too excessively. But when you had all three running backs healthy and ready to go, this ground attack was definitely performing at its highest level of efficiency. When either Trainum or White is out of the lineup and in Gada for really bizarre, if not frustrating reasons, is not been given an opportunity to share the load with one of the other healthy running backs. That's when ASU was just in a world of hurt. And when the running game is not playing at a high level, that more often than not is going to affect the passing game. And the passing game has had its own issues, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast. So yes, I think that's that's a great observation. And the injuries at running back are just really causing the downfall of, of this offense, and especially in the last two games, have been absolutely adversely affecting this side of the ball. Um, next question, and this really goes back to the leadership. What are the captains of this team doing to install any sense of pride with this team? And look, that's, that's a great question, but I, I definitely feel that it's legitimate to call these captains for not being effective in carrying out their leadership duties, especially coming out of the bye and playing the way they played against Washington State. That is just a total lack of preparation. And we could talk about coaches adequately preparing their team during this one-week hiatus, really getting the most out of it. They clearly did not do that, but I think also the team captains were not able to employ effective leadership uh, with with, with their teammates that showed against Washington State, and that's really, really unfortunate. So I don't know if instilling sense of pride may be the right terminology to use in terms of just not being an ineffective leader, but I just feel that whatever buttons needed to be pushed, whether it's from the players to their teammates, from the coaches to the players themselves, uh, just has not has not taken place in the last few weeks, hence the two consecutive losses by Arizona State, where the second half against Utah and almost for the entire game against Washington State absolutely looked uh, dreadful, to say the least. Um, another question um, over here is, are the three suspended coaches coming back this season now that the Pac-12 title is an afterthought? We will hear more from the school or the NCAA about the recruiting violations investigation. Look, as I said many times before, uh, these NCAA investigations do run at, at, at their own pace and usually run slower rather than swifter. Now, can ASU absolutely force the issue over here and having more self-imposed actions take place, which this time may not be suspending more coaches, but rather saying, okay, we are willing right now to reduce on-campus visits. We're willing to reduce off-campus visits. We're willing to reduce the number of scholarship players we can have in in any given future class. And this may apply more to the 2023 class than the 2022 one. Are those sanctions that ASU would want to self-impose 
sooner rather than later just to get this investigation beyond them, especially because a change at leadership, a change at head coach is much more likely than not. Yes, I could definitely see that as a scenario. The thing is that Michael Crow, the university president, is the one really steering the car here. And I'm not saying it's much easier to try and decipher what an athletic director like Ray Anderson would do in this instance. But now when you have a university president in charge of this, when you have somebody who doesn't look at it purely from an athletic standpoint, but looks at it also from a university reputation standpoint, they just might be just operating in a, under a set of circumstances, which could be very different than an, an athletic director. So I think that there really isn't anything that's off the table. And can the three suspended coaches come back from admin leave to the staff and be at what's called an NCAA show clause where ASU has to justify their rehire and their retention for the next two, three years? Yes, I, I, I could see that happening if ASU felt that they suffered quite a bit, not even close to achieving any other goals because those three coaches run admin leave. And really more importantly, keep in mind that those NCAA allegations did not result in ASU having an absolute outstanding 2021 recruiting, recruiting class, an absolute outstanding 2021 season where they're contending for a college football playoff spot, let alone securing a division championship and a Pac-12 championship. So there is something to be said about these allegations not really resulting in any great material benefit uh, for ASU. So there's no doubt in my mind that more sanctions are coming for this program, but if they are going to be self-imposed by ASU, and again, being regulated to recruiting sanctions, reduction in on and off-campus visits, reduction in the number of players you can sign for the 2022, maybe more likely 2023 class, Yes, I think that that is one avenue that can be explored by ASU. Maybe if this now results in an absolute tailspin of the season, uh, then this could be an accelerated process, if you will, by ASU having more offerings, for lack of a better term, to the NCAA saying, okay, we're willing to take these sanctions, and if we do so, can you just close this investigation and just remove this cloud over the program, even though, in a sense, you would still have those sanctions that you're going to suffer through for the next how many years? Uh, I, I can definitely see that avenue being explored by, by, by the Sun Devils. It will be interesting to see if it's something that maybe it's not much, maybe not so much in November, but maybe in December uh, is something that we started hearing whisperings of that happening again. I definitely do not think this is a scenario that's off the table. Next question is really more of an observation saying that this 2021 Sun Devil squad is looking more and more like a Dennis Erickson team, especially in his last season in Tempe. And I believe that this person is referring more uh, to the penalties aspect of it. And yeah, the numbers are really eerily similar. I think Dennis Erickson uh, in his last year was, or maybe over his entire tenure, I'm not sure, was averaging 
penalties uh, per season. ASU right now, uh, fourth worst in the country at 9.25 penalties uh, per game. Uh, fewest penalty yards, uh, also about fifth worst in the nation at uh, 83 and a half yards per game. So, yeah, I think it's absolutely a fair comparison to make, not only to the last year that Dennis Harrison coached in Tempe, but also to his entire tenure where he had an extremely undisciplined team, which shot itself in the foot time and time again because of penalties. And it really is baffling, which leads me to the next question. Um, how is it that our most talented and most experienced roster is making uh, the most undisciplined mistakes? And it really has to do, as I mentioned earlier, with lack of accountability, whether it's from the coaches, whether it's, whether it's from the players. I'm a big believer that you're only as good as the leverage that you have, not only in sports, but just in life in, in general. And when you have players that are just acting uh, um, with without impunity, it just feels that the coaches and their teammates are just not getting through them, holding them accountable. And sure, um, you just have improper technique being used, causing penalties. You have frustration uh, being down by so many scores, also inducing penalties. Uh, crowd noise like uh, the BYU contest in Provo back in September, also a cause for penalties. There really are several causes, but ultimately, if you... As a coach, if he has a, a team captain, cannot hold player X or player Y accountable, really get in their face and make him dread even thinking about committing another penalty the following week, then this, this is a situation that you have right now. Another question that was brought up, and I'm sure not only concerning the penalties, but just in general, as Herm Edwards lost this team. I don't know if I would just pin it all on Herm Edwards, but I think there's something to be said about the coaching staff as a whole, just not getting through this team, whether it's tactically just not having the right game plan every week, whether it's not making the correct personnel decisions, giving more playing time to undeserving players and really having players that are plenty talented that may or may not showcasing themselves in the best light in practice, but, you know, there are some players out there that are just better game day players and practice players. That's uh, one of the oldest cliches in sports, not only just in football. And maybe there are some players that really deserve a much closer and a much extensive look, especially on game day reps, to, to be out there. But I just think that it's really, and I hate to use this term again, pushing the right buttons, but that's uh, what's not happening with the coaches when it comes to when it comes to their players, the message that they're trying to deliver, whether it's in the classroom, whether it's in the practice field, whether it's in the heat of, in the heat of the game, whether it's even a private conversation in the office, they're just not being effective in in, in their approach. And I think, sure, from what I see the last two games, it would be really naive to think that there aren't some players that have tuned out, some coaches that have that there are some players that have tuned out some of the team captains, maybe the entire team captain group. So that is something that uh, cannot be dismissed as a plausible theory. Next question is ASU willing to open their wallet and pay what it takes to have a real coaching staff. I mean, I don't think we, I don't think ASU has a fake coaching staff 
as we speak. I think it's just a coaching staff that for one reason or another is not able to get effectively through the players. But in terms of generally opening the wild, I think ASU really has no other option but to do exactly that. I don't know if that means a coach from the NFL ranks. I don't mean, I don't know if it means a coach that's going to be from uh, the college ranks and, and a very known name, but yes, I think that ASU is not going to really try to go on the cheap over here when they try to rebuild the program. Sure. They're going to lose a lot of veteran talent on both sides of the ball, but at the same time, this is a team that's going to go heavy into the transfer portal. So maybe the veteran aspect of this team is not going to be night and day from 2022 to 2021, just because I'm expecting at least a dozen of players from the transfer portal. And some of them are definitely going to be experienced players. I think there's a lot of good young talent on this team that can, and frankly, will be asked to carry this ASU team. So I kind of doubt that ASU would go for an up and comer coach uh, rather than um, trying to get somebody who is either a proven commodity in college football or proven commodity in the NFL if ASU continues with that pro model. And sure, I know that a lot of fans are souring on the pro model just because he really did not yield the results you expected to yield under Herm Edwards. And now you have an incident investigation to boot that happened under Herm Edwards' watch. But as long as Ray Anderson is is the athletic director, I don't see him really shying away altogether from the pro model unless there's an absolute mandate that's handed down by his boss, University President Dr. Michael Crow, to not hire somebody from the NFL ranks just because an individual happens to be from the NFL ranks. So I don't know if it's really going to come to that, but you're basically in a situation right now with this program that there's not one specific scenario, there's not one specific approach you could say is absolutely off the table and it's not going to take place in Tempe. So anything and everything should be considered at this point. Next question, uh, from your from your observations being around the team and staff, what are some of the reason, reasons that such a talented team on paper simply cannot get it done? And what can you can fix those issues and avoid the wheels completely coming, coming off? So I'm going to address the second part of the question because I think the first one has been discussed at length so far at this podcast. I think that one thing is to just dangle that carrot of the NFL in front of the veteran players. And whether it's somebody who is exhausting their eligibility this year, like a Chase Lucas, or somebody that can still play next year at ASU, but definitely has some circumstances that would behoove them declaring for the NFL draft sooner rather than later, like linebacker Merlin Robinson, simply tell folks like that, say, look, we got NFL scouts here almost every practice. We got NFL scouts at every game of ours. Uh, You're going to have NFL scouts that may have not seen you in person that want to see a lot of film of you, both in practice and on game days. So you should have a lot of other natural built-in incentives to play and play well or and to practice well. But if nothing else, just the next step of your career, turning that dream into reality is really going to require you to elevate your game that much more. So I think that this is something that at least in theory should prevent, as you say, the wheels coming off should help ASU finish 
on a much stronger note and actually put forth much better performances than they've seen in the last two games. And I think that is one element that can really help the team play and play much better than, than, than they did in recent weeks. I mean, when you talk about being, being prideful of the program, when you talk about wanting to silence the critics, and I've seen a lot of ASU players on social media really taking exception to some of the stuff that's been set out, that's been said by beat writers, as said by ASU fans, uh, about just really, really being down on the team, questioning their heart, questioning the desire to succeed. There's always going to be a group of players on the team that will need that extra motivation, will need that so-called chip on the shoulder to perform at a much higher level. So if some players are seeking that motivation, that is definitely there for the taking to uh, put as a wallpaper on your laptop or to save on your on your iPhone and look at it each and every day. So yes, I think that that is something that can also motivate the team and the players from uh, having just a total uh, tailspin over here. Don't forget, in 2019, ASU was 5-1, and one, went to a really brutal road game at Utah, which you know looked much worse than the 2021 outing, but nonetheless did start a tailspin of four games, which they only snapped out of uh, with that improbable win at home against Oregon, that uh, touchdown that's going <laughs> to be replayed time and time again by, by Brandon Ayuk uh, catching that deep ball from Jaden Daniels in that contest. So a tailspin is something that I wouldn't put past ASU, especially the way they played the last uh, two games. But again, if you're an ASU player that would love nothing else than not to see nasty comments post-game and bulk uh, comments, after after another loss, then maybe that is something that, that's going to motivate you and avoid the wheels of completely coming off. Next question, um, if Herm Edwards uh, does leave, does Ray Anderson have to go too? Uh, I, I addressed that earlier. I really don't think that uh, th- this is something that we're going to see happening in a span of a same calendar year or even three, six months apart from each other. You do have to have an athletic director in place that's going to hire a head coach. I do see Herm Edwards leaving before Ray Anderson rather than vice versa. And it's just too much stress on the athletic program to have both your head football coach and athletic director leave at the same time or even leave just months months away from each other. As much as an ASU fan dissatisfied with one or both of them, I really don't think that's a scenario that you want to entertain. That's a scenario that you want to come to life. Uh, what should fans expect from University President Michael Crow to get out, out of his ivory tower and have a press conference releasing? I think that Michael Crow is definitely going to speak after the end of the regular season. I don't uh, see him addressing, as uh, some ASU fans wanted, uh, over the weekend or on Monday no, no, November 1st, there still is one-third of a season to be played. There's still a recruiting class that you're trying to salvage as much as you can. There were a lot of visitors 
on campus for this Washington State game, and some of them really came away unaffected by what they saw on the field. If you go to our premium message board, uh, Devil's Huddle, become a premium subscriber if you aren't one already, uh, you will read about what some of those prospects think about Arizona State, and you might be surprised that they're much higher in the program than some of the ASU fans out there. So I'm uh, curious to see uh, what's going to happen with this recruiting class, and even if the 2023 recruiting class is being able to be patient with the changes that are going to take place. But right now, there is much more positive feedback than you think there is from uh, local recruits and even from some very prominent uh, out-of-state recruits. So that is another facet that is driving the timing of the messaging that Michael Crow is going to have there in terms of the future head coach at Arizona State, let alone the future of athletic director Ray Anderson. Uh, next question, uh, who are the candidates to replace from Edwards? That's something that, honestly, I really need to delve delve into, gather more into, look at who are the more feasible candidates out there. Last thing I want to do is just really throw a bunch of names on the board and see actually what sticks. And again, I'm not totally dismissing the fact that Antonio Pierce, who has been in the head coaching waiting, may just be the head coach at Arizona State. I'm not putting that at great odds. I don't think Michael Crow is really trying to go in that direction more than just hire somebody from the outside. But I really think that we're also in a never say never mode over here in Tempe. So that is uh, something that I would not take off the table, at least not right now in the first week of November. Okay, we're getting into the home stretch over here with three last questions. First one, uh, why are you not running a pro ISET formation with Case Hatch as fullback? Why not put uh, Jaden Daniels under center more since he does not run the ball enough to make the zone read effective? So these are definitely excellent questions, but one thing to keep in mind is that even as late as the Washington State game, and really I would say almost every contest this year, we did see some I-formations where Case Hatch was the fullback. Now, what I would like to see is Case Hatch actually get the ball on a third and one, on a fourth and one, and there were there opportunities like that against Washington State and really in other games as well. Because I don't mind Jaden Daniels doing a quarterback sneak, and I believe he was affected on one such occasion against Washington State, which didn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. But when you go back to the fact that there have been so many games where either DeMonte Trainum or Rashad White is not available on game day, why not utilize Hatch as a runner on a couple occasions, especially when you do have those short yardage, especially when you are running in I formation and you really never showed it on film to anybody that Case Hatch would actually be the ball carrier rather than one of the ASU running backs or Jaden Daniels, a quarterback himself. So I'm, I'm definitely all for Case Hatch really running the ball, but the I formations, we've definitely seen that, like I said, as late as this Washington State game and even in some contests before that. But in terms of putting Jaden Daniels more under center, um, I think in certain situations especially short yardage ones, that definitely does call for that. 
but I know that this offense and really 90 some percent of offenses in college football are operating out of the shotgun. So I wouldn't force the issue and just, and just line up Daniels under center just to line him up under center. There's definitely a down and distance and time of game and, and scoreboard situation where those scenarios are going to be more prudent than, than others. But in terms of just the zone read, uh, Maybe just the lack of, de- lack of depth of the running backs these days as preventing Zach Hill, the offensive coordinator, of running that more. Maybe we will see more of that uh, in the last four games of the season over here. But I'm definitely not, definitely not opposed to that. And really, I think when we talk about just a lot of things that have been been trying to be accomplished week after week, not being all that effective, Definitely trying different approaches, whether it's Case Hatch running the ball from time to time, whether we're seeing actually more zone raid. I think those are definitely prudent avenues to explore unless they're absolutely imploding in practice, whereas that kills apprehensive of really putting them in motion on game day. There's always that scenario as well. Next question, is Jaden Daniels doing enough as a leader? Regardless of the situation, his demeanor seems too nonchalant. At one point, does he need to hold his teammates accountable on the field? Look, I think it's not going to be too harsh of a statement to make that Jaden Daniels is not a get-in-your-face quarterback. And there are definitely team captains, as I mentioned earlier, Chase Lucas, Case Hatch. I would even probably put Darren Butler in that category. They definitely will call out players and not even bat an eyelash about that. So it is okay to have different type of leaders as part of the team captains. I just don't see that as being the end-all, be-all conduit to all the issues that ASU is having right now. Uh, Quarterbacks can come in all different shapes, all different sizes in terms of personality. And I'll be the first one to admit that Jaden Downs is definitely on the quieter side when it comes to leadership style. Some will say that the quarterback has to be fiery. Some has to say the quarterback has to be more than the other team captains, somebody that will absolutely call players in public for for not doing the right thing. And I do believe that Daniels is not one to do that. I'm just not convinced that that is the most significant issue right now with the overall leadership on the team. This is one of the biggest deficiencies of Jaden Daniels as a leader. I'm, I don't know if I really would go as far as that. But at the same time, I don't know if it would hurt for Jaden Daniels to probably be more confrontational because there are definitely some players in offense that are really not pulling their weight whether it's players that are committing in excess of penalties, wide receivers that are dropping balls almost almost on a consistent basis, maybe not running a right route in some cases. So there's definitely something to be said of maybe Daniels changing his leadership style to some extent. But as far as him being just a more nonchalant type of individual, uh, 
doesn't necessarily mean that you can't hold your teammates accountable. You you can do it in different ways. But but again, I'm I'm definitely not opposed uh, for Daniels maybe in desperation mode, if you will, from a leadership standpoint to just change his ways and be a, a different and more vocal leader. And the last question over here, which I think was probably a fitting question to end, what glimmer of hope does this program have going forward? Is there one? And look, uh, a glimmer of hope maybe has to be uh, both examined in the short term and the long term. In the short term, ASU is still in it when it comes to the Pac-12 South Championship. Will that require an absolute implosion by Utah the rest of the way? Probably. Will it require ASU to do a massive 180-degree turn and just play lights out, just dominating football like we've never seen, not only this season, but really in season past, to take advantage of any downfall that Utah may encounter? Sure. So if you're looking for a glimmer, I guess those two scenarios I just laid out could still happen, but I'm sure you can already sense by my voice that I'm not too optimistic about both of them happening at the same time. I mean, sure, Utah could really implode and start losing games left and right, and ASU not taking advantage of it, or maybe ASU really uh, reversing its fortunes and playing absolutely its best football the entire year these last four games, but Utah doing just enough or just maybe playing much better than they have been the last couple of games themselves to uh, c- capture the South and, and do so uh, without really sweating it out. Uh, I mean, any, anything can happen, but, you know, glimmer of hope is that ASU theoretically is not is not out of it. And interestingly enough, Utah actually has a Friday night game this week, as some of you may know, at Stanford. And sure, Stanford has not looked good uh, since that loss day, that, that since the loss to ASU a couple of weeks back. So even at home, uh, I'm not really holding my breath for Stanford to win win that game against Utah. But if they do win, and ASU does win the next uh, next night against USC then things get a little more interesting. So if you're looking for a glimmer of hope for 2021, there you have it. As far as a glimmer of hope for the future, uh, I think that a head coaching change does usually carry some kind of measure of hope with it. And with Herm Edwards, which in my opinion is likely going to be gone after the 2021 season, you can hope that better days are ahead. Uh, I think from Ray Anderson's personal vantage point, uh, he will know that he didn't succeed with the hire of Herm Edwards and definitely will be very, very motivated to hire a big name, to hire someone who would move the needle with the fan base. At least that's my opinion on, on the subject. So just hiring that big name, Hiring somebody that really would captivate, if you will, a good segment of the ASU fan base could definitely offer a glimmer of hope for the future. So that's something you really have to look uh, look look forward to. And maybe when you come back to the NCAA investigation, that ASU has 
cooperated as much as they can with the NCAA. And if you're looking for a glimmer of hope that the sanctions may be more on ASU terms than the NCAA terms, maybe terms that ASU could could live with and not really set the program back severely. If you're looking for a glimmer of hope in that department, I think that definitely could happen. But look, all in all, there's no doubt that there's really tough times right now for the ASU football program. There's no really way to sugarcoat it. Um, ASU absolutely embarrassed themselves against Washington State. I don't think there's any other way that anybody should really spin it. Uh, Definitely coming out of the bye week, playing poorly going into the bye week in that second half against Utah raises a lot of concerns, a a lot lot of red, red flags. I don't say I don't think that ASU is is incapable of bouncing back from the tough spot they're in right now. How much can they bounce back? Does it even make a difference in the championship race for the South Division? Uh, that's anybody's guess right now. I'm not putting high odds on it, but let's see if by some miracle ASU gets some help from Utah, and let's see if ASU is so disappointed in itself and so sick of hearing the critics that rightfully did come out of the woodwork uh, starting on Saturday after the Washington State loss that they are motivated in that sense to really right right all the wrongs and and realize that they have to finish the season on, on a strong note to have somewhat of a good taste in their mouth and really be able to salvage as much as they can from this 2021 season. We'll see. Um, I know that things uh, are looking uh, pretty pretty gloom right now, but um, the game against USC this coming Saturday will tell us a lot, obviously, uh, how much ASU can truly reverse its fortunes and really have a chance of finishing the 2020 season on a strong note. So that'll do it for the Devil Junkies podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for sending all your your questions. I hope that I was able to address as many of them as possible. And if you have any more questions or if you would like uh, to read uh, my full extensive thoughts, not only about the Washington State game, but just the rest uh, of the season, make sure that you subscribe today to devilsdigest.com. I mean, no matter how good or how bad the season will be, from here on out, one thing that you never has to be in doubt is the level of coverage that we do have at devilsitis.com. So we definitely encourage you to join us and be a part of our community. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great week. I was living in a devil town. I didn't know it was a devil town. Oh, Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town.